you're listening to highlights from One Planet Podcast's interview with Henry Hsu, author of The Pivotal Generation, Why We Have a Moral Responsibility to Slow Climate Change Right Now. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. One obvious fact is the enormously long lead time built into some of the causal connections within climate. Carbon emissions injected into the atmosphere in a given year can contribute to forcing sea level rise in not merely later centuries, but later millennia, dozens of centuries after the source of those emissions has disappeared from the earth. Some carbon emissions released early in the Industrial Revolution are yet to have their full effect, which still lies in the future. Present and future emissions matter as much as they do only because of past emissions and their long-lasting effects stretching far beyond the date of their release and on through the present into the future. These long-lived connections provide a radically different example of the insight from one of the characters created by my fellow Southerner, William Faulkner, quote, the past is never dead, it's not even past, end quote. And similarly, long chains reach from the present into the future. Conventionally, we tend to think that the future is yet to be born or is even only just beginning to be conceived. But the climate future was already beginning to take shape when humans started centuries ago to inject more carbon into the atmosphere than the usual climate dynamics could handle in the usual way. And so climate parameters were forced to start changing. The vast and accelerating carbon emissions of the late 20th century and the early 21st century are building minimum floors under the extent of climate change in future centuries. Timothy Mitchell has written, quote, the modes of common life that have arisen largely within the last 100 years and whose intensity has accelerated only since 1945 are shaping the planet for the next 1,000 years and perhaps the next 50,000, end quote. The future is not inaccessible. We hold its fundamental parameters in our hands and we're shaping them now. In this respect, the future is not unborn, it's not even future. The reach of the present, what we who are alive can set into motion, extends far across time for good as well as evil. In some cases, climate change is one. Our reach will be long and deep, millennial and profound, whether we wish it or not. And we can make its outcomes good or, at worst, far better than they would have been had we continued as we are headed now. While it's because of the situation we face, we can tell from the science that we have to reach zero carbon emissions by 2050. And common sense tells you that bringing them down for the second 50% is going to be harder than the first 50%. So we have to take care of the first 50% by about 2030. And it's 2023 already. We literally must, if we're going to keep climate change from becoming even more dangerous than it is, do a very great deal in the next seven or eight years and a huge amount between now and 2050. So it's not that this problem is the most important of all possible problems. There are other problems like, say, preventing nuclear war. But this is a problem that either we get a grip on it now or there's a real possibility that it will escape from our control. 
we need to be hard-headed about this and look very hard at what people are actually doing. Carbon credits could be a good thing, but they would need to be carefully regulated and we would need institutions to police them and be sure people are actually doing what they say they're doing. And meanwhile, we should concentrate on reducing emissions because in theory, the carbon credits would get you to the same place, but only if what they promise is actually delivered. And it very often isn't. There's a very recent study saying that something like 90% of promised carbon offsets are not actually being implemented. I don't know if it's that bad, but there's a lot of hanky-panky going on. An article by a philosopher who pointed out that we tend to think that the most important effects of what we do are the immediate ones and the ones that flow from what we ourselves do. So it's our own individual immediate effects. But what something like climate change shows very clearly is that those are not the most important effects of our actions. The most important effects can be very distant. The passage I was reading in the beginning was partly to make that point that it's not just the immediate effects of what I do, but in some cases, effects over centuries. And the other point, which was not in that particular passage, is another thing that matters very much is not just what one does individually, but the kind of social institutions and social practices that one is part of. And of course, that's where something like farming comes in. Are you part of a kind of industrial approach to farming where you just pour on the fertilizer and in a way pound away at nature? Or do you try to work with nature and regenerate the soil and try to add nutrients in a natural way that's cooperative with it. So the effects of one's life that matter are not simply the kind of short-term effects of one's individual actions, but the more collective and general effects on things like what kind of institutions we have. I mean, a lot of people now are worrying about their own carbon footprint, and that's good. We should all try to reduce our own carbon footprints. But it's even more important to change society's practices, something like, I mean, this now seems obvious, but something like getting away from cars that burn fossil fuels to cars that use electricity, provided the electricity that doesn't come from fossil fuels. And changing what kind of cars we drive is a big change in a social institution. And of course, just using cars less would also be good, but that's tied in with the structure of our societies, the fact that we have suburbs and people have to drive to get to work and so on. That I mean, it would be good if that could also be changed, but that's a more long run change that'll take a while. Young people need to encounter nature to actually get out into it and see it and feel it and smell it, sense it. And one thing philosophers can do and are trying to do is to argue that value is not just value to humans, which would be a kind of instrumental value. You know, you want to save a plant because you can make tamoxifen out of it, and tamoxifen will help prevent cancer, which of course is a good thing. But also, say species and other elements of nature have value in themselves and their value doesn't consist solely of what they can do for us. So that's two things. One is to make the point that not all value is value for humans, but 
things can have value in themselves. But the other is to try to find ways that especially young people actually experience nature. And a lot of people now really despair at the percentage of their time young people spend on their phones. I mean, near where I live, there's some beautiful meadows and they're in between one settlement and the main town. And I see lots of young people walking through the meadows, but they don't see the meadows because they're looking at their phone the whole time and talking on the phone. And so they're not actually having an experience of nature, which is right there for them to have. How you bring it about that they'll do this, I don't know. I mean, you can't probably pass laws against uh, spending time on your phone. But with very young children anyway, parents could actually impose a time limit and insist that their children get out and do something else besides exchange superficial ideas over the phone. Well, it very much depends on which part of the public. And one of the most hopeful things, I think, is the activism among young people, people like Greta Thunberg. That's what gives me the most hope is that there is one segment of society, namely the youngest people who are fired up and who do see the problem and do want to do something about it. I think it's really accurate to say that the battle to get a grip on climate change is also the battle for democracy. Our politics are now heavily influenced, if not literally controlled, by vested interests. And these include fossil fuel interests. So the clear evidence of this is that the richest governments in the world are still subsidizing the extraction of fossil fuels. I mean, the United States, the UK have tax breaks and other subsidies for fossil fuel. So that's a climate problem, but it's also a democratic problem because it means that the politics are not being run for the benefit of the general public. They're being run for the benefit of some relatively small number of vested interests. So we need things like youth movements on climate change for the sake of the climate and for the sake of getting our politics back under democratic control. This distinction between subsistence emissions and luxury emissions was made me my main contribution to these debates. And it's right. It's recently been calculated that the richest 1% of people in the world produce more emissions than the bottom 50%, a whole lot more. And a lot of these emissions by those of us who are in the richest 1%, and I'm probably one of those people, a lot of our emissions are from things we don't really need to do. We don't need to constantly fly for our vacations. We can walk in natural places near where we live, or at worst, we can drive away in an electric car and so on. This, of course, means changing some of the things that we take for granted. And by noticing how great the emissions that they cause are and doing something to reduce our emissions. One thing we can do and which I've tried to do is spell out the ways in which this is a ethical or moral problem. The people don't need philosophers to tell them that they're facing problems. I first became interested in this problem by talking to delegates from India who said, you people in the rich countries keep saying, we have a problem. And our question is, who is we? You industrialized, and it's mainly the greenhouse gas from your industrialization that's created climate change. 
we haven't done that much industrialization yet. This was 25 years ago. Of course, now India is beginning to industrialize. But their point then was, and it's still largely true, that a lot of the problems are going to hit countries that haven't caused climate change. And so this strikes people just intuitively as unfair. What a philosopher like me can do is just spell out ex exactly why it is unfair. I think they're right. It is unfair if one person causes a problem and then someone else has to deal with it. That makes it as if the one who's dealing with it is the slave of the one who caused the problem. I make a mess and then you have to clean it up. That's as if you work for me. And that's really incompatible with equal respect for all human beings. And that's the sort of thing philosophers can spell out. And there are now a lot of good philosophical work being done spelling these things out. We need to find a way that will preserve the forest, but enable the people who live there to have worthwhile lives and lives that they would choose to have. So we shouldn't treat them like they're objects in our museum of nature. It does turn out that indigenous people are by far the best at preserving forests. If one allows them to live in accord with their own culture, they will take care of the forests and guard them. But we need to work with them cooperatively and not impose our schemes on them. Well, I did my graduate work at two different universities. I did a master's at one university, and then I went to another university to do the PhD. And when I was at the first university, it was thought of as one of the world leading places in philosophy. And I learned to use the methods that were dominant there. When I went to the second university, the first seminar that I took was a critique of the methods that I had learned at the first university. And this made a big impression on me because I had left the one where I did the master's thinking, okay, I know how to do this now. I'm getting good at this. But then I learned, actually, there are problems with this way of doing things too. So what I learned from all this is not that no method works and nothing is worthwhile, but just that however good the methods of analysis one has at any given time, they're not going to be perfect. And so one needs to keep some humility and keep an open mind and keep on learning and not assume that you're on top of things. So one lesson I would draw for education is we really do need to teach people to think critically and not just try to pump them full of the beliefs that we think are right. And I do worry about the extent to which some topics are put sort of out of bounds at universities. We don't want to allow hate behavior, but I think we also need to maintain free speech and enable people to think critically. And this is another of these tricky matters, but I think that's another balance we need to try to keep. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click subscribe. Thank you for listening.